from our text that we just read a moment ago, we find that Daniel knew that Nebuchadnezzar was an idolater and that a portion of the royal provisions was given over to consecrate the idol in connection with the feast. And for this reason, his conscience would not consent for him to take part in the false religion by accepting food. And so he requested the prince to be excused from partaking. The prince of the eunuchs was responsible for the development of these specially chosen men. And he would naturally be unwilling to grant to Daniel the exemption requested. But God took a hand in the matter and caused him to have a tender love for Daniel, which led him at least to be personally disposed to favor him. This is but one example that we can find in God's Word where a man purposed or resolved in his heart the course of action that he is going to take or he was going to do. I believe that the Bible upholds resolving or purposing with many examples that are found throughout all the pages of divine inspiration. We find in God's Word how it was that God Himself truly purposed. We find often that the Apostle Paul did the very same. He purposed. And he would also exhort others to purpose as well regarding their giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 7. The entire idea was that a man needs to purpose in his heart, purpose in his mind, well in advance before an action is taken. If we wait until we are stuck in a crossroads of making a determination or a decision for changes in our life, chances are we are not going to make those changes. And as we look back across the landscape of the previous year, we will find that we are no different than we were a year ago. And so it is something that we must do. We must take stock and we must take a view into our life, into our heart, into the things that mean something to us in this life and determine the changes that we must make. I will say this though, that not necessarily in our life do we have to have negative things or bad things going on for us to realize that we need to make changes. If we are going to stand, you know the old saying that if we do the same things we've always done, we are going to be in the same place that we've always been. With reference to the body of Christ and the goals that we have congregationally here at this place or congregationally across town with those that call the Brundage Lane congregation their home or all throughout the brotherhood of wherever the Lord's church meets in any designated area, in order for there to be growth and development, there needs to be change, a constant changing. The message that I wish to convey for a few moments this afternoon is that we as Christians need to take that retrospective view of ourselves in order that we might grow. The only way that we can determine or purpose where we want to go as the body of Christ is to first take inventory to decide where we are. Businesses must do the very same thing. If a person is going to have a business plan, that individual is going to have to look as the lead uh, individual of that business. 
They have to take a look at where they are today. They have to ask themselves, where do they want to be in the future? And then there must of necessity be a plan of action in order to get there. If we don't do that, we will never grow as the body of Christ. You know, the problem with resolutions today, especially those that the world makes, especially at the very dawning of a brand new year, is that shortly after the year begins, usually by February or March, what we have resolved to do, what we have purpose to do, goes by the wayside. I would say perhaps the most common resolution that people make around New Year's is, I am going to lose a few pounds, or I am going to get a membership at a gym. I'm going to do something to improve my health. I want to do something by way of my eating habits so that I might be healthier if I have a problem with my health. I want to do the things that will alter my health for the good. But oftentimes, those resolutions go by the wayside quite frequently after they start. And changes are never made. I want you to know, too, that I understand that when people resolve to make changes in their life, I do believe with all of my heart that there are many well-meaning people that have all of the best intentions about them. They just lack a plan, and they lack the focus to see it through. But did you know that when one makes a resolution for that which is good regarding their spiritual life, it is never to be broken? Hear the words of old as found in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verses 4 and 5, which says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Those things for good spiritually are not to be broken. Let me just say this, if I may, that the only way that we can take a good look at ourselves and determine where we are perhaps is one of the most difficult things that we must do in the flesh, and that is we must be completely and brutally honest with ourselves. You know, it's pretty easy for me to be honest about Ryan's faults. That's real easy. Or someone else. What's difficult is for me to be honest about my deficiencies. Now, that's tough. Let me illustrate it this way. Sometimes we don't see that. We don't see outside of ourselves and recognize that. Anyone who has ever played the game of golf will understand when I give this illustration exactly what I mean about being honest with yourself. A story was once told where two fellows went out on a golf course, and they were good buddies, and they were traveling in a golf cart together, enjoying the day. And as they finished one hole, there was one fella, and he'd be the guy that kept score. You know how that goes. And they got back into the cart, and he took that card, and he's thinking about the hole that he just played, and he's counting up the strokes that he had taken for that hole. Well, as he added those things up, he writes down, well, I think I had about a six. And he writes that number down. Then he asks his good buddy, he says, what'd you have? Well, he thought for just a moment, and he said, better give me a six, too. 
And then after a while, as time went on, he was thinking over the next few seconds, and he says, now wait a minute, wait, 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 that's not right. That's not right. I don't think I had a six. I think I had a five. Well, his buddy looks at him and kind of pauses for a moment, took that pencil and writes down an eight. He said, what'd you do that for? Why'd you write down eight? I didn't have an eight. He said, well, this is the reason. You said you had a six. Then you said you had a five. You had a seven. Why'd you put down eight? He said, that's the penalty for improving your lie. Very difficult sometimes to examine ourselves and look to exactly how we are and what we do. Number one, I want to talk to you for a few minutes now about four things that are worth resolving, worth purposing in our life. Number one, let's take this time from this point forward and let's make the resolve, the serious resolve in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, and so on, that we're going to be more faithful in church attendance. You know, let me say this. It has to be said right now. Because it is part of our job as fellow Christians, not just preachers and teachers, but fellow Christians to encourage one another and exhort one another about assembling with the Lord's church when the, when the doors are open. But I have to say also, it is also necessary to commend and recognize when brethren have done that which is good. I want to praise all of you that have come to this meeting. You've turned out and come out to, to services. Last night we had a full house. That was wonderful. Friday wasn't much shorter than a full house. It's very important that we recognize when brethren do good too. Not only are we supposed to uh, admonish, not only are we supposed to uh, bring up things that are negative, reprove and rebuke. Remember, that's what Paul said. You have to be instant in season and out of season to a young evangelist, Timothy. He told him this, reprove and, and rebuke. That's easy because that's all the negative stuff. Then he says, you have to exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. That's to encourage people to do what they already know is right, and they already know what they should do. But we need to praise brethren, too, when they do that which is good, when they do that which is right. And I appreciate very much the attendance of all the brethren that have come to be with us. You have truly added to this meeting. But you know, there are far too many people that aren't sick. They're not old. They're not feeble. But they want to take their Christianity in capsule form, administered in Sunday morning doses. They want to be the Sunday morning crowd. You know, very sadly, when we look out throughout the brotherhood, why is that? Why is it that we have a Sunday morning crowd, it's one size, a Sunday evening crowd, another size, and a Wednesday evening crowd, still another size. Why is that? Couldn't it be that as we look to the lives of all, of all of us and brothers and sisters in Christ, couldn't it be that we need to make a resolution, that we need to take a full examination, being very honest with ourselves, and ask ourselves the question, where really is my heart? I believe this with all my heart, folks. I say it with all the love I can possibly muster. Here's the deal. If we go out and do other things except come and worship with the saints when the doors are open, there's no way around it. We have to accept it for what it is. You know the saying, you are what you are, or it is what it is? 
We have to accept the fact that we truly have just made a decision to do something else. Let's call it what it is. That's what it is. We've just made a willful choice to do other things. Why would I constantly bring that out? Why would it constantly be mentioned in Bible studies and constantly be mentioned by congregational teachers everywhere who stand in a public forum and teach on this? Quite simply is this. Jesus said, if there's anything else in your life that's more important than I am, you cannot be my disciple. That's as simple as that. How would it be if we have chosen to do something else and we're in the middle of doing all of that? that the Lord comes back. Sobering things to think about, I hope. But understand this, far too many Christians want this. They want the lines drawn. They want the parameters drawn. They want to know where does it begin and where does it end. So all I have to do is that which is in between. And then all I have to do is serve God that way, the bare minimum, and I can go to heaven. Let me just say this. If a person is seeking after the bare minimum, it's their heart that needs to change. A man needs to change his heart. It's all about the heart. Did you know that when the heart is one way, it determines where that person will spend eternity? Because if the heart is not right, Jesus said, the seed of the gospel will not produce fruit. If the heart is not right, that person will not make the right decisions in his or her life. Understand this too, and that's why it's so important that we keep encouraging one another to guard the heart. The reason for that is apostasy begins in the heart. The heart goes first. It's the heart that comes to Jesus first. And it's the heart that leaves first as well. When we come and we, well, actually, when we miss services, we miss an opportunity to do some wonderful things. Number one, we miss the opportunity to worship God. What a wonderful opportunity we've been given in life to do so. We've been given the opportunity to come together and edify and uplift each other. We've also been given the opportunity to come and be edified. You will never get that moment in time back ever again. Don't lose those opportunities. Don't let the Lord be second in your life. It won't be acceptable in the day of judgment. We must put him first in all that we do. Ladies and gentlemen, it begins in the heart. Now, one more thing about this. If you're a person that has no problem with church attendance, great then make the resolution, make the purpose in your heart, make the calm resolve and the serious resolve that you're going to do what you have to do to encourage others to be the same way. Let's make that resolution, and let's stick to that. Number two, let's be mindful of and make the resolve that we're going to be more prayerful, that we're going to have prayer be a part of our everyday life, that it's going to be a main part and a large portion of our day. We must understand that God is willing to listen. 
Have you ever stopped to consider that? I know we've prayed. We prayed tonight. Our brother prayed for us, and we said amen to that prayer, and in doing so, that was our prayer too. Oh, we believe in prayer, and prayer is had all the time. But don't lose sight of what exactly is happening when we pray. We, as a child of God, is speaking to our Heavenly Father, and He is listening. How many times do we get confused in life? How many times do we go through struggles because we don't lay our cares and our burdens on the only one that can help? You know, that's what we do, isn't it? We take our problems to our friends. They can't help. They can't relieve those burdens. Another time, too, you give somebody something that's not theirs to carry, they'll pass it on to somebody else. Lay your burdens on God's shoulders. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12, the Bible says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their hearts. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. God has promised not only to listen to our prayers, but he's also promised that he will answer those prayers as well. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 15, the Bible says, And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. You know, Jesus taught on prayer. He surely did. There were times when people would see Jesus praying and they would know that he was a man of prayer and they would congregate to him and they would be drawn to him and they would even ask him, would you teach us a little more about prayer? You know, we can learn a lot from Jesus about prayer in all the times that we can find that he prayed by example and also all the times that he gave instruction about prayer. We'll not go into the story, but you remember Jesus one time taught about pretension in prayer and the heart that a man is supposed to have when he prays to the Almighty God. We know that with the Pharisee and the publican. We know all of what the religious elite, the Pharisee, did with his broadened phylacteries as his robes were behind him, as he was swept up those stairs that day in the hour of worship, as he stood there in the presence of the Almighty God, gazing up toward heaven, and told God how great he was. Nobody ever taught this old hapless publican how to pray. There wasn't a rule book at the door. He just found himself in the presence of the Almighty God, and when he did, he recognized his sin. He smote his breath, which is a, his breast, which is an outward sign of inward anguish. He wouldn't even look up toward heaven. He bowed his head down toward the ground, and he said, Father, be merciful. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know what Jesus said? He went home justified. You know what that word means? To have acquitted. That's right. That old hapless publican and all the extortion and all the horrible sin that was guilty in his life, he went away forgiven. The other one, all of his wonderful works, all of his wonderful attributes that he told God what he was, he went home with all of those and his sins too. Jesus also taught something that you and I need to think about though. I don't know anyone, I really don't, I don't know anyone in the sound of my voice tonight, I don't know that I know anyone personally that's a Christian that would fall into the category of one who was guilty of pretentious prayer. I don't know anybody like that. But you know, Jesus taught something else about prayer. He taught 
persistence in prayer too. You remember when Jesus gave the parable of the friend at midnight? He was teaching about persistence in prayer. And as he gave that parable and taught that sermon so long ago, he said this, which one of you that has a good friend that's your neighbor, your dear friend, and it's midnight, and somebody that's also a friend of yours comes into town, comes to your house, comes to your door, and you open the door and you let him in, but you go back inside the house and you open up the cupboards, as it were, and you look in there and you see that there's no, nothing to give your dear friend. You are short of provision. So what do you do? Jesus says you go at midnight to your friend's house. When you do, though, I could just imagine in my mind's eye the picture of this. You knock on the door. Your friend is a good friend. He calls out, what do you want? And you, and you tell him what happened. Someone's come to my house. I'm short of provision. Please let me have loaves of bread that I might feed a friend that has come through. You know what Jesus said? Even though he's your friend, he'll say, no, don't bother me with that. Don't bother me with that right now. It's midnight. I'm in bed. My children are fast asleep. Don't burden me with that right now. But Jesus says this person talking to the same friend is persistent. In fact, he says this. When he's persistent, he won't give him the bread because of his friendship He'll give him the bread because of his importunity. That's what the King James Version says, means persistence. Because of his persistence, he'll finally say, okay, here it is. Here's the bread. I hope we know what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about this. If your friend at midnight, you can persuade your friend at midnight to give you bread if you're persistent. Surely you can be persistent in the heart and the eyes of God, and pray and receive the same. He continues to teach an application about that parable, and he goes on to say this, what father in the world, which by the way, earthly, fleshly fathers can be wicked? They surely can. They can be evil. In fact, there are wicked, evil fathers in life that are evil to other people. And Jesus painted that picture. But then Jesus said, the same father with his, with his own son is going to be completely and thoroughly different. Notice what Jesus says about that. He says, first of all, for us to continue to do so, continue to ask. He says, and I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. I think we understand in looking at the verbiage that's described there that that is a continual asking. A person that will continually ask, continually knock, continually pursue that's the person that's going to receive the blessings of God. Notice what Jesus says really quickly now in the scriptures as he compares a physical father in the flesh that could very well be a wicked man 
in comparison to God. Notice, verse 11. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Why, surely not. Or if he ask for a fish, will he give for a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he ask an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? By the way, this Holy Spirit here, some manuscripts say good spirit. What he's talking about is the same language he was talking about on the great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when it talks about good things. How much more will your heavenly Father give good spirit or good things to those who ask? You know, I think it's important that we're persistent in prayer. Prayer needs to be a focal point of our day. Someone said this about prayer. Prayer may cause us to quit sinning, but sin will cause us to quit praying. Trouble drives us to prayer, but prayer drives us away from trouble. We should pray without ceasing, but very sadly, some cease without praying. Prayer needs to be an important part of our life. We must pray daily as if everything depends on the Almighty God, and we must work every day as if everything depends on us. Start your day in prayer. Pray during your day, and certainly never pill your head at night without clearing things up with your Maker. That's a wonderful blessing. We're not perfect. We can go to the God of heaven in an attitude of prayer before our heads are pillowed at night. Before we drift deep into the unconsciousness of night, we can pray to God and ask God sincerely from the bottom of our heart to forgive us of any transgression or anything that stands between us so that we can know and feel confident and sure and comfortable with all the blessed hope that if the Lord came back that night, or if your soul should be required of you that night, you would be okay. But one man said this, though, He who runs from the Lord in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. Begin your day in prayer. Thirdly, let's make the resolve that we're going to do better about visiting those who are less fortunate and those that are in need. Remember what Jesus pictured when he pictured the judgment seat in Matthew, the 25th chapter, in the judgment scene there. Beginning in verse 34, Jesus said, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. But notice the sobering words as found in verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, 
Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was in hunger, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw thee, we thee, a hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall be answered, he answered them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it not unto me. Jesus said, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. I realize that there are many wonderful people in this congregation right now, also from Brundage Lane. I know you personally. I know you do this. I've seen you do it. We all know that. And by the way, if you think you're doing things in secret, which is the way we do it, we don't want to blow the horn. But I'll tell you something. You cannot go and continually do good deeds for others in your life and not have people know it. People will know it. Your influence will scream volumes without you uttering even a word. So I do appreciate all those that do that. They go and they see to the sick. They take things to the needy and so on, especially those of the household of faith. And we're so thankful for you. But if you notice, we're getting bigger. We're growing. That means there are more that have needs now. That means that there are others that are among us that need something from us in every way, shape, or form. You know, we can defeat that old devil and we can get to heaven one day, but I'm going to tell you this right now, it's going to take every one of us. I believe that with all my heart. A few people cannot do the work of the church. A few people cannot go out and see to the needs of the sick and those that are in need. It'll take us all. Let us be resolved to do that, to be better than we've ever been in the past. And let's help others, especially help us all get to heaven. But finally, this afternoon, let's make the resolve that we're going to be better about telling others about Jesus. Sometimes I think that church members think that as long as they live the Christian life and live their life away from sin and, and attend services of the church, that that's really all that's required. That we really don't have any other responsibility. That we live our life as Christians over here in like a, a group or, I hate to say the word, but like a clique or something. That's not Christian living. Because Jesus said that I'm supposed to go out and tell somebody about it, and you too. Not just the preachers. You too. Oh, that's a responsibility that all of us have to share. Let me ask you this question, though. I want you to think back of when you became a Christian. When you once heard the gospel preached, many of you grew up in families that were Christians. I was very fortunate that I was a young boy when my parents were converted. Very thankful for that. What about the folks that did not have parents that were instrumental in converting them? Somewhere in, your, in the course of your life, somebody preached the gospel to you. What if, go back in time in your mind, what if that person would have never said a word? What if they would have never invited you to come to services, to a gospel meeting where a preacher preached the gospel? 
What if? Where would you be today and where would you be in eternity if no one took an interest in your soul? Why do you suppose that the truth is often the best kept secret in town? Here's some reasons why folks say, excuses often given, they say, well, I don't have enough knowledge. You know something? I am convinced that you will do, you will know exactly what you want to know. If you're truly interested in something, you will learn it, you will study it, it will, you will think about it, you will talk about it until you know it. Some people say, well, I would, I just don't know any candidates. I just don't have any leads. I don't know anybody. You go to school, go to work. Have you ever gone to the grocery store? Have you ever seen a trash man, a gardener? Have you ever lived in between two houses and those people next to you are called neighbors? Have you ever been part of a club? Have you ever been in a sport? Have you ever known somebody? Have you ever conversed with another human being? Oh, we know people. We surely do. You know, don't be fearful either. Don't be fearful of rejection. Just remember what Jesus said. When they reject it, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. That's what Jesus said. But think about this. Have you ever met a salesman that didn't sell? Have you ever met a ball player who didn't play? Have you ever met a Christian that didn't save souls? I hope we would never be indifferent. I would hope and pray that we would never be lulled into complacent security where we're just content with where we are. Because I'll tell you something, if we want to grow as the body of Christ, and we do, we've had some tremendous growth in this area, we've had growth amongst our members, we've had growth of those that have been uh, baptized into Christ and, and have been converted, that's great, that's wonderful. But listen, we are not done. We are not finished. We have so much more to do, and we are not satisfied because the Lord's not satisfied either. We have work to do until he comes back. Don't be lulled into complacent security. Let's not hold back. Let's resolve that we're going to build bridges into the lives of others. Let's continue to spread the gospel to those that are lost and hope and pray that they have good and honest hearts. Let's take the word of God and try the very best we can to soften even the hardest of hearts so they can go to heaven too. I want you to listen to these very sobering words as found in Ezekiel chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, where the Bible says, When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his soul, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered but his blood will I require at thine hand. That perhaps is some of the most chilling words in all the Bible. I wonder how many folks would have been receptive if we would have just been brave and courageous and bold. 
If you don't know what to do, you can just invite them. If you don't know what to say, get me involved, I'll say it. But let's reach into the lives of people that we come in contact with and let's save souls. In conclusion, let me just say this. In order for us to take a good view of ourselves and be really honest of where we are today, we must realize that oftentimes we like to inflate ourselves. We like to give ourselves a little too much credit. We can see the faults in others. We don't see them in ourselves because after all, it doesn't apply to me. Sometimes we exalt ourselves or we esteem ourselves more than we ought to think. We need to get out of that mentality and get out of that spirit and that heart because that won't make change in our life. Let me illustrate it this way really, really quickly. A story was once told about a fellow that was a very well-off, well-to-do man. He was the CEO of a very large corporation. I understand he was a very, very important man. One day, being in all his importance, he's in his important car with his wife, and they're driving down the road, and they see a gas station, and they decide to pull in there and get some gas. Well, here the CEO whisks his car into that gas pump, jumps out of his car, and the gasoline attendant comes over. He no more even looks up at this fella. He just says, fill it, as he walks on by and goes inside the store area there and wait for, its time, for his time to pay. Well, after a little while, the gas station attendant was finished and the gas was done pumping. He looks out the window and he sees that his wife is having an animated discussion with this gasoline attendant. Well, he thought, well, how odd. She can't surely know him. But then he pays for his gas, goes out to his car, the gasoline attendant waves goodbye. He gets in that car and he pulls away, and when he does, he says to his wife, you know, I couldn't help but realize, or I couldn't help but see that you were talking to that fella like you knew him. Did you know that man? She said, yeah, I knew him. Went to high school with him. Well, he inquired a little further. He said, well, was he a friend, an acquaintance, a classmate? Who was he? She says, well, no, actually, we dated quite extensively while we were in school. First thing out of his mouth, he said this, man, honey, are you lucky? She looked at him kind of surprised and said, well, why am I lucky? Oh, are you lucky that I came around? You are so lucky that I came around. She said, well, how's that? He said, if I hadn't come around, you would not be the wife of a CEO. You'd be the wife of a gasoline attendant. She looked him dead straight in his eyes, and she said this. Let's get one thing straight, honey. If I'd have married him, he'd have been the CEO, and you'd have been the gas station attendant. Sometimes we exalt how we really are. We need to step out of ourselves and see ourselves for what and who we are and make the resolve we're going to change. In conclusion, if there are changes that you need to make this afternoon in your life, I implore you, don't put it off for tomorrow. Don't do that. One man wrote this about tomorrow. He said, tomorrow is the great enemy of advancement. Boasting of tomorrow is the lazy man's way of evading today's duties. Tomorrow leaves more tasks undone, more books unread, 
More houses unclean, more programs unlaunched, more resolutions unkept than any other factor in life. Tomorrow is the great enemy of the church. Our great liability is not our ignorance or our unconcern or our unwillingness, but tomorrow. More absentees have been neglected. More lessons have gone unprepared. More prospects have gone unlisted. And more lost people have gone unsaved because of tomorrow. Where one man, being an atheist or an agnostic, died in a lost condition, losing his soul, there are thousands of well-meaning people who found themselves in that same condition because they were waiting and counting on tomorrow. Tomorrow is Satan's best scheme in keeping lost men lost. Yes, Satan knows he will never destroy your faith in the Bible or your belief in the love of God. He does not care when you realize that you are lost and that you need to be a Christian. He knows all of these things are of no avail to you if he could just keep you waiting for tomorrow. Are you not a Christian? Are you not a Christian this afternoon? The Bible clearly states, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. When we hear God's word, that's what moves us to make a decision. We believe what we've heard and believe in Jesus for whom he is as the Son of God. We make the determination in our life that we no longer want to travel in that way. We want to go a different direction. That's called repentance. I'm making a change. I'm making a resolution. I am making a purpose in my heart. I'm going to change. Then the Bible says that a man must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And upon these steps, as we noticed this morning, these things are unto or up to a man's salvation. But Galatians 3 and 27 says, It is when a man is baptized, he is baptized into the body of Jesus Christ. His sins are washed away. He is saved in a saved condition, added to the body of Christ, the Lord's church, and starts his life. The only one that matters right then. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.